Well, you know something I learned again yesterday? I just want you to know it. Uh, uh, here's what I learned yesterday. And if you'd have been sitting in our seat, uh, you would have been reminded of it too, that young people want to know if there really is true love. Real true love. And the Bible tells us that there is. In fact, in 1 John 4, if you go over there, I just want you to see it. You, you all know it. I'm ash- not ashamed to admit. That's not the right word. But I'm going to admit something to you. About 45 minutes before I did my teaching yesterday, I learned something new about this verse. It's in chapter, verse 18. Here's what I learned about kids, young people. They're looking for love, but they're looking for true love. And here's what the Bible says in verse 18. There is no fear in love. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about fear. There's bad fear and there's good fear. The bad fear is the fear of man, fear of circumstances, fear of worry and all that sort of thing. The good fear is fearing the Lord, which is awe and respect. Being in reverence of the Lord, coming into a relationship with Him. Fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord go hand in glove, right? But here it says, there is no fear in love, but how about this? Why would that be? Because perfect love, true love, casts out fear. Guess what the word fear is right there in the Greek? Phobo, P-H-O-B-O. It's from where we get the word phobias. Hmm. To know that you're loved and to be loved by God casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. You know, we have kids. There were some here yesterday. They're tormented. (laughs) But I'm not picking on kids because adults are the same. (laughs) And here the Bible tells us that perfect love casts out the wrong kind of fear and ushers in the peace and love of God into your life, despite any silly or bad or awful circumstance. And so that's what we're examining. I led with that because that's what we're examining here with Jesus, as Dr. Luke now takes us through a lot of things, just be frank with you, that on the surface looks like they don't match up. Why does he kind of pick and choose what he talks about here over the next several chapters, we're in the middle of chapter 11. He's just told us about the Lord's Prayer. Remember one thing. I think they do have some continuity, yet remember one thing. In Hebrew teaching, rabbinical teaching, they had this thing called the stringing of pearls, much different than the way we would teach. You know, we would teach like we're writing an exam paper. Here's outline, or here's point number one. Here's point, number, or here's point number one, and here's the evidence to support it. Here's point number two, as we uh, write persuasive papers and come a, kind of come to a conclusion, we just do it kind of logically and linear, in a linear, linear way, and we put all the, uh, uh, um, the authority in those papers to try and persuade someone. At least that's what I do in my work as a lawyer. Uh, but here, Jesus In some ways, you think, well, how does this one thing that he's talking about in these chapters relate to each other? Well, I think they do in some respects, but I also think what he's doing here is he's preparing his disciples. He's teaching his disciples. He's building up his disciples, and he's using a literary structure or a teaching structure that the rabbis would use called stringing of pearls. He just kind of bounces from one uh, topic to the next. Why does he do it? Because he knows they need that ministered to their heart so that they could go out and minister to others, you see. So as we look at the rest of Luke chapter 11, keep that in mind. Where we've come from is that Jesus when asked to teach him how to pray or teach his disciples how to pray, did it. He taught them how to pray. Remember, there was a Earlier, what most people called the Lord's Prayer, again, I don't think this is the Lord's Prayer. I think this is the disciples' prayer. I think the Lord's Prayer is in John chapter 17. You can go check that out. This is just Jesus teaching them how to pray. And this is the second time that he gives them this format, this, these principles of how to pray. 
What's fascinating to me is, after spending some time with Jesus, they saw the power and the strength and the grace and the truth and the mercy just flowing out of Jesus. And they said, wow, the key to all of this is prayer. They, they could see it. And they said, teach us to pray. They'd already been taught to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. That was a, that was a prayer that contained approximately 65 words. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. They taught them this prayer, or he taught them this prayer then. But later in his ministry, as they're seeing, you know, all the things that are coming at Jesus and how well he handles life, of course he does, as he's plugged into the Father, they go, hey, teach us to pray, please. So they must have been sitting on their edge of the seat going, wow, and I, I trotted out some books last week to show you how many books you can read about prayer. And Jesus goes, okay, I'll teach you how to pray. And he gives them 58 words approximately. Interesting. I would think he would expound upon it, right? But he's giving them principles. Why do you think the Lord gives principles in the Bible? I'm convinced. He doesn't tell you everything that you should do or you shouldn't do. We're going to learn a little bit more about that today. But he doesn't tell you everything you should do or you shouldn't do. Why do you think that is? Should I wear my dress here or here? Should I date at 18 or 19? Where does it say that in the Bible? Or 20 or whatever. Where, where does it say? I'm convinced the reason he doesn't tell you specifically about every little detail of life is because he wants you to keep coming to the Father through him. Just stay close. Be guided by the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures as you study the Scriptures and the Lord opens things up to you. Right? Isn't that beautiful? 58 words, but amazing principles. And he gives us these, this contrasting parable where a friend goes over to another's friend's house and knocks on the door, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. You know those scriptures. And you read them at first glance and you go, wow, is this trying to tell us the way that Jesus is, that he needs to be bugged or strong-armed in order to get something from him? And that's not the case. This parable is a contrasting parable. And what he's saying is, you know how you have to strong arm some people? Like even at midnight, he makes it so ridiculous in the parable. Well, you don't have to do that with the Lord. He wants to give quickly, the Bible says later in Luke. You don't have to be scared of any answer that the Lord would ever give. Never. Because you know the character of God. And the character of God is that he is a good father. We read that. And you're going to need that as you travel through life. That's what he's telling us and you and me. You're going to need to stay plugged into the Father. You know, it says pray without ceasing. Everybody goes, well, then how long do I have to pray? <laughs> That's the, the way of man, right? But really, your whole life, our whole life is a life of prayer. And so we talked about that. And so we get here now uh, in the middle. We stopped in the middle at verse 14 of uh, chapter 11. I'm going to read just until 23. We'll pray. And then we're going to try and close out the whole chapter. But here's what it says in 14 through 23. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was, when the demon had gone out, that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself... How will his kingdom stand? Because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own, guards his own palace, excuse me, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Well, let's pray.
Well, Lord, we need help in discerning and deciding and uh, understanding what the text is saying. So the only way we know is to rely upon you and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us as we read and study and think on and teach uh, these words of Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Now here, you know, uh, you've, we've encountered it uh, two times already. Jesus had already cast out demons in chapter 9 of Matthew and chapter 12 of Matthew, and they were, had already accused him of being you know, associated with Satan or being guided by Satan. So this wasn't new to Jesus. He had encountered this before, but he was casting out a demon and it couldn't talk. Now, you don't think anything much of that, but if you lived in the society in which they lived, at the time at which they lived, see, that was a big deal. Because the Jews had exorcists, they, people who would exorcise demons, and they believed that in order for you to exorcise the demon, well, you needed to know the name and get the person who was demon-possessed to tell you what the name of that demon that was inside of them. And so, when this writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says it was moot, what he's trying to say to you is that this was really impossible under the standards of man at the time. Get it? That's what this means. And he was casting out a demon and it was mute. For the Jewish exorcists, they needed to call out the name of the demon or demons in order to get it out. That's the custom of the day. This one couldn't talk, so it couldn't tell them the names. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. Of course, they're marveling at the power that he has over demonic things or demonic entities. But another thing they're marveling at is that he didn't need to use the name. There was real power. This was authentic. This was powerful, and there were no tricks or spells or anything weird. This was just the power of God. And the multitudes, remember, when you're reading the Bible, figure out who the players are. Here's Jesus with his disciples, and he's uh, casting out a demon from a mute fella, and there's multitudes around, and they see it and recognize the power of God. He casts out uh, you know, demons that are mute, but some in the crowd, of course, right? They say this, he, they say, well, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, in 2 Kings, you could go there and look, this is a Philistine god, one that was called here or the, the, the word is translated from the famous book that you've read when you were in eighth grade, The Lord of the Flies. And what that kind of signifies is this is the one who's the ruler over the heap of dung, grotesque, vile. This is the one who rules over evil. Now, this is interesting. If you change the word Beelzebub to Beelzebul, you put an L at the end, it means Lord of the dwelling. The Lord of the dwelling. Why is that interesting? Because the Bible seems to indicate, and Jesus really believed it. You know, you hear people a lot of times. I heard one lady this week, as a matter of fact, say, you know, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died and rose again, but I don't believe in Satan or evil. Well, that's interesting because Jesus really believed in it. He talks about it. The Bible's full of references uh, to a structured or a highly structured army, so to speak, that follow the one who fell from heaven, Lucifer, who fell from heaven, becomes Satan, the, the anointed cherub who, was a worship, cherub who was a worshiper. And the Bible tells us some things. Uh, I'll just take you to a couple places. Flip over to Ephesians 2 about the realm of the demonic. Look at this. 
you guys and I, man, when I get to this verse, <laughs> when I get to this verse in my one-year Bible, I'm stoked, man, because this is really cool and applies to me, but I want you to see something. You go, oh, wow, and you, he made alive. You Don't you go, yes, I do. Wow, there's real life in Jesus. Who, catch this, folks, we're dead in your trespasses and sin. Now let's think about who the enemy of our souls is from what the Bible says. First Peter tells us that he is a roaring lion seeking to devour you. Now, I'm not real smart, but what does devour mean? He wants to kill you. He's come to seek, kill, and destroy. The books of John tell us that he's a liar and a murderer and a thief. What is he trying to steal? Is he trying to steal your money or your car or your house? No, he's trying to steal your soul and bring you into hell with him where he knows he's going to reside forever and ever. He's trying now. He knows he's a defeated enemy. We'll talk about that in a minute. He knows he's a defeated enemy, but while he has limited authority now, because remember, he can shoot fiery darts right here. While he has limited authority now, he knows his final end is hell. He wants to take as many of us as possible. And if he can't take a believer, he wants to wipe out your witness. He's a roaring lion. But the weird part about it is, if it's weird, is the Bible tells us that he's not dressed up in stuff that you could easily recognize as being evil. He doesn't have a red suit and horns. No, he's an angel of light. In fact, what we're going to read here in a minute, it says he's wily. Do you remember the Saturday morning cartoons? He wasn't very wily, the coyote, by the way. But wily, he's the wiles of the devil. He's slick, and he takes truths and gives you half-truths or leaves out some of the truth like he did in the garden, like the enemies of Ezra did in their letters to the king. Yeah, they gave some truth, but they didn't give the whole truth. And the whole truth was that Cyrus, the king, had given a decree that the Jews could be rebuilding the temple. But the enemies came against them and said, hey, these people are rebuilding a temple. What are they doing? But they left out the part about the decree. You get it? Enemy leaves out all of the truth. Here, that's what your enemy is going to do. And one of the truths that pervades the church... <laughs> is that we're not sinners. There's several places where they won't talk about sin. Because if I do, I'll offend somebody. The problem is, with that uh, approach, is you can't know any good news until you know the bad news. And the bad news is that we're sinners. Our hearts are deceptively wicked. I mean, who could know it? I can't trust my heart. When you hear the worldly uh, wisdom of, oh, just... Do what your heart's telling you. I don't want to do that. Whew, I don't want to do that. What I want to do is base my life, and so do you, on the Word of God and what, who God tells me I am. And here in Ephesians chapter 2, he makes us alive. Because listen, if you're a sinner, and you are, so am I, you before Christ, or if you're outside of Christ, are dead. I don't know how else to say it. You're dead. Why? Because you're a sinner. You're in trespass. You've crossed God's line. You've sinned against him. In which, listen, he's writing now to a church, so he says, in which you once walked according. Listen, if you're outside of Christ, I don't care if you come to church a million times a year and give tons of money and serve on the committees. If you're outside of Christ, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you are walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. You're, you're a child of wrath if you're not in Christ. That's what the Bible tells us, right? The spirit who now works, keep going on in Ephesians 2, in the sons of disobedience, among whom, lest we get uh, really pious and spiritually superior, he goes, but hold on now. You, you conducted yourselves the same way, so... In the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But thank good for verse 4. 
God is rich in mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us live together with Christ. There's the good news. There's the good news. You can't know the good news unless you know the bad news. There is a demonic order that wants to drag you into the pit of hell. Flip over to Ephesians 6. You say, come on, man. What is this? Saturday morning cartoons? Is this real? Look in verse 10 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. He warns his followers, or the church, us, be strong, brothers and sisters, in the Lord. But don't be strong like you're some strong person. Be strong in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you can withstand against the wiles of the devil. And then he reminds us, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle, Here it comes. Look at this order. We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And then he gives you your spiritual... Uh, uh, you know, he gives us uh, the spiritual armor here, and I want you to see something down here. Where is it? It's fiery darts. They know it's in there. 16, above all, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. What are the fiery darts? Well, we're studying Ezra, so I'm going to give you some fiery darts. Here's one. When the enemies of God... Come, or the adversaries of God come against the rebuilding of the temple in the book of Ezra. Guess what they do? They recount accusations in a letter to the king who allowed them to come and rebuild the temple. Now, just follow me for here for a second. You know what Revelation 12.10 says? That the enemy of our souls, Satan, is an accuser of the brothers and sisters. You know what the enemy is going to do? He's going to shoot fiery darts to you. Oh, you think you can speak at the men's conference? Do you know the thought you used thought on Tuesday? How could you possibly speak at the men's conference? Or the way in which you spoke this week to so-and-so, you shouldn't even show up in church. You're not even a Christian. You ever had these thoughts come? And you can think of a million things. Or, you know, you, me and my wife, we're just not getting together. Oh, here's what I think. We should split up. But here's what I'm, why I'm saying this. The accuser of the brethren will, is sitting there, has some sort of limited access, and accuses you day and night. But it's, what's interesting is we have an, uh, a mediator, a great high priest that intercedes for us day and night, and Jesus, that one, the great high priest, told us, listen to this, in the Sermon on the Mount, don't justify when you get accused. <laughs> don't, don't run around and say, oh my gosh, I mean, I'm not that bad of a sinner. Come on. No, he says, you know what Jesus says? He says, agree with your adversary quickly. He says, agree with your adversary quickly. When somebody comes and says, you know, you really shouldn't speak at the men. You're not fit to speak at the men's retreat. You, you, or maybe it's in your head. You know what we should say? You're right. I am not fit for this. And yet the Lord has saved me by his grace and mercy, and he's offered me forgiveness. And now if I've hurt somebody, I'll go say sorry, and I'm going to just move forward in the Lord. That's combat. Listen, that's the shield of faith. We just walked through the shield of faith. It's not something you put on your arm. It's something you know in your soul from the word of God, by the spirit of God, that you walk by. You got it? Okay, so one thing that the accuser of the brethren does is he makes accusations against you. Jesus has defeated that. He's our great intercessor. He's there with us day and night. You know what Jesus is saying? He's not looking over at Andy going, my goodness, man, Andy, looking down from heaven. What are, what are you doing? I mean, come on, look, God, I'm, God, please, let's fix this. No, that's not what the Lord's doing. You know what the Lord's doing? He's got his nail prints. The blood, he just pleads the blood. Lord, Andy's your kid because he surrendered his life to you. And now look, the communication channel is open because of the blood. Andy can come boldly through the, uh, to, to the throne room for grace and mercy. That's what our intercessor is doing. The enemy can't defeat that. 
Okay, so there's one thing, fiery dart. But guess what he does in Ezra number two? (laughs) Here it comes. This is the great fiery dart. He tries to discourage the people. Discouragement. Discouragement. You really think you're making any difference at all? Ever had that one come your way? Or maybe you're a a stay-at-home mom, which, by the way, is the hardest job in the world. (laughs) And you might be saying something to yourself like, you know, dishes, diapers, car rides, soccer practices, anything happening here. And you become discouraged. And here's the thing. But the Lord has set you there for 18 years. 18 years of seminary right in your home so that you, mom, can nurture up the kids and teach them the word and love them and dad can come along and supplement that if there's a dad. And you, can, and, and you come together and it's not for nothing. That's a terrible way of saying it, isn't it? But the fiery dart says, does this even matter? Hey, guess what else was a while of the devil in the book of Ezra? It's weird or interesting because Haggai, the prophet, tells us why the Israelites stopped for about 10 to 15 years from rebuilding the temple after they got the foundation laid. They stopped for 10 to 15 years. The prophet Haggai swoops in goes and prophesies to the people who are back in the land when they should be building the temple, doing the Lord's work. Guess what he says to the people of the Lord that got them off track? Building their own houses. The comfort and security of material possessions the enemy can use against you and I as a fiery dart. Now there's more. I I haven't exhausted them. But you get the picture. You get the picture. And what changed the people of God in Ezra from cruising and doing nothing for 10 to 15 years to getting them back going again? Do you know what it was? The Word of God itself. Both Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to them at the same time same time period, and they began to work again, get into the Word. What's really interesting about Haggai and Zechariah is Haggai, I said this on Wednesday, it's really fascinating. Haggai, short, to the point, you guys are screwing up. Zechariah, long for the minor prophets, and very comforting about how much God loves them, and as they return, it's like good cop, bad cop. (laughs) But it was both the Word of God and it got those people going and moving again to rebuild that temple. Isn't that fascinating? The adversaries of God, or our great adversary, is going to use... He, he, does, he has the same playbook. There's nothing new. He'll take half-truths. He used it in those letters. He'll twist it around to try to accuse you. You say, well, you don't know the half of it, accuser. But I have a great high priest who's uh, for me and opening up uh, the heavens so I can be with my father. And you say, well, discouragement. What discouragement? I know I'm sitting here and I'm a little dry, but your word promises me that if I dig in and I keep uh, reading the word and fellowshipping with the saints and worshiping you, you'll bring water to my soul. Right? You know it. And as you keep reading the word, You'll get out of that rut or not doing anything and get back on uh, track and keep going. The Bible's amazing. Jesus believed, wow, how did I get here? Jesus believed in the devil. We should too. Well, so here's this Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Uh, Beelzebul could mean Lord of uh, indwelling. That's because the enemy of our souls is indwelling people. Who does the enemy of our souls, who can he or will he indwell? Well, he can't indwell a born-again, spirit-filled Christian. The Bible says, he who is in me, God himself, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. I don't believe he comes in and possesses non-Christians, or excuse me, Christians. Can he send fiery darts to us? Of course. 
He does all the time. He wants to ruin and wreck Christians' witnesses so that you can't be effective for anybody else, you see. Well, here we go. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. You know this, right? People back then, especially the Jews, the Bible tells us, wanted signs and wonders. I have this morbid fascination, especially when I had COVID. And the morbid fascination was I turn it high up in the channel section, and I watch the car wrecks of Christian ministries on those high channels that are begging you for money. And that's all they do 24 hours a day is they beg you for money. They get you because what they do is they tell you that you can, if you just watch and you participate in their ministry, you'll do signs. You think I'm lying? This week, one ministry was offering, listen to me, if you come and get trained under this minister, you'll be able to teleport others. No lie. Same minister says, if you come and train in your ministry and pay money into this, no lie. You'll be able to time travel. There's a whole bunch of others. I can't remember them. I was laughing. What? Oh, we could walk on water. That's right. We could walk on water. But time travel, time travel, teleport. Where, where does that come from? Anyway, why am I saying this? Because, see, that's the ultra-extreme-ism of people seeking after signs. Do we love signs here? Of course we love signs. But the Bible, man, when somebody gets healed, yay, praise the Lord. When something happens, yay. But listen, later on, Jesus said signs, or excuse me, in Acts, he says, Peter does when he's doing his sermon in chapter two, he says signs or an attestation. Do you know what that means? It means like a witness to the fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again. It's not the sign you should be chasing after. If you chase after the sign, you're going to have a shallow, disruptive, disjointed faith. Do we want signs? Of course. But if you rest in the fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again according to the Scriptures and will save you from your sins... And you rest in that. And now that the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you're going to have a rich, fulfilling, forgiving, or forgiven love relationship with God himself. And you'll be stable. Right? It's not the signs, folks. Don't seek after the signs. Do we love signs? Of course. But he, knowing their thoughts, because they, they says here that they were testing him, verse 17, said to them, well, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Listen, what is, there's three arguments basically here. They're saying, you're from the devil. You're casting out devils because you're from the devil. And Jesus says, have you ever taken a philosophy class? He doesn't say that. I'd probably say that in a real smart... Are you, this is totally illogical. This is totally illogical. G, uh, Satan, if he was ruling me, wouldn't bring people out of other people. He'd keep them in. <laughs> it makes no sense what you're saying. And then the second thing he says is, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom... This is, this is really getting after them. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judge. See, there were Jewish exorcists. So he's saying, well, you people do it. So are you from the devil too? That's what he's saying right there. Are your people from the devil too? And then he goes, therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, What's the finger of God? Where do you remember it from? Daniel, yeah, Daniel's one place. Where else do you remember it from? Say it. Huh? Moses, exactly. He wrote the commandments, right? What he's saying here is the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what you're witnessing. If I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. I am one, he's saying, from God. 
Not only that, I am God, but anyway, he goes, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. In other words, I am from God. I'm going to strip him and bring him to a place where he's ineffective. You know what my favorite one is? Man, not my favorite one. Go to Colossians 2. See, I like the 70s and the 80s of NFL football. Actually, I like the 70s and the 60s, but I was born in 67. You know why I like the 60s and the 70s of NFL football? I'm gonna, don't show this to the Players Association, because I hate free agency. And if you're living here, you probably hate free agency too, because the 70s was primetime stealer time. You know why it was primetime stealer time? Because nobody ever moved teams. Why am I telling you that? Because it was utter domination, and the NFL got sick of that. And obviously, the, uh, the free agency rules allow people to move now. In fact, you can just complain a little bit, and people will make you move. But uh, just watch the NBA. But uh, why am I telling you this? Because this, see, I like... Even though I grew up in Ohio, so I didn't like the Steelers back then. But the Steelers made NFL football great. Because you either loved them so much because they dominated. Or you hated them like we did over in Ohio. Because we were terrible, right? Why am I telling you that? Because it was, I like domination in that sense. You know, it just appeals to me. But here the Lord says, be you know, that's not for you. That's for my Lord. And in Colossians 2.15, you get a sense of conquering. I love it. This is like, you know, when the bell rings in a boxing match or an MMA match, and the people come, and there's this one little fly person kind of jabbing and stuff, and then there's like, hmm, you know, the other boxer or fighters like this, hmm, hmm, and just goes, boom, and knocks them out. And it's over. I mean, you know, they're flying, the mouthpiece is out. This is this spiritually right here. Here's what Jesus did. He disarmed principalities and powers. Listen to this. He, he made a public spectacle of them. Where did he do that? At the cross. From the grave. He rose from the grave. There, if you read Psalm 22, I'm, con I'm convinced He's describing what he sees from the cross. And he says this one place, the bowls of Bashan encircle me. Well, thank goodness when we went to Jerusalem, we got to see actual bulls of Bashan, and they're impressive, these big livestock things. But what I think he was saying was, the enemies of my soul are out there gazing and laughing and mocking. And here in Colossians 2, we see utter domination, not only did he disarm, not only did he conquer, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. I went through all of that at NFL just to tell you that, but that's the most powerful thing, you see. You can trust Jesus Christ. He's defeated the powers of darkness, and the worst thing that darkness could dish out, evil can dish out, is the bodily death of a person. Jesus solved it. He conquered it. He's victorious. And so you go back here and you go, wow, he takes and overcomes. He's stronger back in Luke 11 in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Now listen, this is stringing the pearls. And here you get a glimpse of what's really happening in the world. What's really happening. I mean, yes, this is real. We're sitting here. We got chairs. Uh, praise the Lord. The place is painted now. Well, you didn't used to be painted too well. And we got brand new lights. And this is real. And that's, that's good. But what we don't see is right now, right here, there's a battle for the souls of men and women, boys and girls, going on in the supernatural realm. And when you go out of here, Maybe right now. It's going on in your heart right now. But when you go out of here, you're going to be walking down the school uh, hall or walking down the street, and there are going to be people that the supernatural are battling over. They're not just people. They are people. But the enemy of our souls wants to drag them forever into hell 
God wants to bring them back to heaven through reconciliation with him by the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? Okay, so, but wait a minute. So he strung some pearls, but then he gives a knockout punch to us. This blows it wide open. He says in verse 23, really, even I can get this. Hey, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me, listen to this, scatters. Do you know in Revelation, he says, I'd just rather spit out from my mouth a lukewarm Christian. Listen, if you're a Christian, if we're Christians, if there are Christians who claim the name of Christ but are neutral, if you're Switzerland in the church, you know the Lord's been calling you to do this ministry, set up the chairs, come clean. I don't know what it is. The Lord's been calling to you, and you say, listen, I just want to go and hear the word and leave. I don't even really want to talk to anybody. I might smile and say hi, but I want to get out of there. I don't want to participate in anything that's going on in, in terms of the advancement of the kingdom. I don't want to do any of that. What do you mean I don't do that? You know what Jesus says? This is like in NFL parlance, you giving the plays or helping the Patriots. You, you, what here he's saying is, if you are not gathering, you're causing things to scatter. You're, on the, you're, you're working for the other side. If, if you're just cruising, if you're not with me, if you're, you're not uh, uh, you know, full on, you've laid your life down to Christ, you've recognized that you're picking up your cross daily. Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we cruise sometimes. But if you're not, the trajectory of your life is that you're moving forward, helping to advance the cause of Christ. You're sharing with people. You're serving in the soup kitchen. You're helping at lunches, whatever the Lord calls you to. Not everything, but something. You're plugged in and you're, you're moving and the trajectory of your life is to move and help to advance the kingdom. Well, great, you're with him, but if you're not, if you're just cruising, here's what he says, you're against me. I mean, that's powerful, folks. That is powerful. I, don't you want to just pray, Lord, I want to be with you and rowing with you and working with you and participating with you. I want to be in that place like in Isaiah where, you know, just, oh, you need somebody to be sent over there? Send me. You know, it's not like you go, wait a minute, where is the where? What time is the where? What do I have to do? You just say, send me. I'll do it. You're my king. You're the king. If not, we're against him and you scatter. You, you help to disrupt the work. I help to disrupt the work. I don't help to gather. Isn't that amazing? In fact, some have said, listen to this, he who is undecided is decided. If you're undecided about whether to jump in or not, you've decided. Another pastor says, how many unwilling servants are in the camp of the enemy? Did you hear that? How many unwilling servants are in the camp of the enemy? Oh, my. You know what I do? I go, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, help me to be willing. <laughs> help me to be willing. What else? Well, then he says, well, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. You know what's really fascinating about this? You know there's this... I don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do culture in the church. If I just, you know, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do other things, then I'm a good Christian. <laughs> well, what this is teaching is, you can't just say, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, negative. There must be that filling of the Holy Spirit and the light and love of Christ that must come in. Because if you just take out of a person, like for instance, 
If there's a demon cast out of an unbeliever, oh, you just don't go and go, oh, great, fantastic, let's, let's hit the trail. No, what you do is you remember Ephesians 5.18 where it says, don't be drunk with wine. You see the don't? Don't do, don't do, don't do. Don't be drunk with wine, but what? Be filled with the Spirit, which means be being filled. Fill yourself up with the Spirit of God. Ask, how do you do it? You ask. We read that last time. Just ask. Not hard. You don't do dance around, do some incantation of some sort. You just ask the Lord by the blood of Christ. Here he says he'll fill you up. Christianity is not lived in the negatives. There must be a filling. You never become good by not doing things. The only way you become good is filling yourself up with Christ. Or me. That's the only way we... Right, you get it. There must be a filling. Okay, so it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd... See, this is human nature right here. Just so totally human nature. I would say something like this. They're witnessing all this and they go, Wow! This is so emotional. I'm going to say something that sounds really religious and spiritual. Excuse me. Okay, here it goes. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. We have some traditions right now that look other places and to other people other than Jesus Christ. And it may sound religious and sound spiritual and look spiritual, but Jesus said... If you want to be on my team, you're either for me or against me. You're either gathering or scatter. If you really want to, if you've seen and heard and recognized that I am the Messiah, it's great, I guess, to be emotional. Yeah, I want to, I want to have the Lord touch my heart and be emotional. But what really counts is that you hear the word, you know the word, and you keep the word. Blessed are, more than that, Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Isn't that incredible? This is what it takes to be on God's side. You're not perfect or great. Yeah, that'd be great. You're not perfect or great. Uh, you're not perfect or great. Neither am I. We sin, but we, we recognize uh, when we sin that we can come back to him. And that he's given us a new nature and that uh, his righteousness has been imputed to us. So what we want to do is we want to be blessed and happy by hearing the word of God. Let's stop there. we got another whole segment of society loves to hear the word of God. There can be some in our tradition here. Love it! Bible study on Sunday, come back Sunday night, be there Wednesday, do the men's group, do the thing, do the da-da-da-da-da. But do we ever live it? Do we live it? What happens when you have slighted somebody and you've just acted like a jerk and the Bible tells you, well, Here's the antidote. Here's the thing to do. Go ask for forgiveness. And you know, as the pastor, you hear these stories a lot. And the person will call and you'll say, well, go ask for forgiveness. And then here here it comes. I know it's coming. Four words. One with a contraction. I can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? You mean you won't do that? Are you willing to obey the Lord no matter what he asks in his word? Are you willing? See, that's what he's looking for, a teachable, humble heart to respond to all that he says. Why do you think he says, obey my word? Is it because he's on some ego trip that he wants you to be under his thumb doing everything he says? No, not not at all. What he knows is is that the healthiest and safe place to be is in the will of God by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. He's just looking out for your best and greatest 
So here he says that. He says, no, no, hear the word. Well, the crowds were thickly gathered. Isn't that a great way to write that? In other words, the crowds were getting big. Real temptation when the crowds get big, folks. Real temptation to the pastors and to the worship people and to the leaders when the crowds get big. Wow. We must be doing something really right here. That's the temptation to say. And here, the crowds were thick and gathered together, and he began to say, what a way to start a sermon. Hey, come on in and sit down. You're welcome here. Oh, by the way, you're evil. That's what he says here. This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And you know this from the story of Jonah, the prophet. Where was he sent? He was sent to Nineveh, Assyria, the most hated country in the world at the time, and he rebelled and didn't want to go, and he went the other way, and he got stuck in a whale, and he got belched out. <clears throat> so eventually he goes, and the Bible tells us that he repent, or Nineveh repents. You don't have to come to the Bible college now. I'm teaching Jonah. But what's interesting is even this guy, after they repent, you'd think Jonah would be happy. No, he goes and sits under a gourd, and he's mad. And he, Jesus said, that story was real. A lot of people don't believe that account is real, even in the church. That story is real. And what I want to tell you is you seek after the signs. That's great. Signs are good. But that ain't the thing I'm going to give to you as a sign. You just remember one sign. Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, or actually it doesn't say whale, the big old fish. That's how we'll say it. And after three days, he got let out, or he was let out, or he came out. This became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. You want a sign? I often have people come to my office or call me or text me, and they say, I don't feel loved. I just don't feel love. God doesn't show me love. He doesn't say anything in my prayers. I'm not moving forward. You know, I get this a lot. And I say, well, I absolutely, 100%, 120%, if I could be, I know that God loves you. I know it. And that's not because I'm a pastor. I just read the Bible. And the reason I know he loves you is because he sent his son to die for you. And that's all the farther you need to look. And me too. He gives you this sign. He became a sign to the Nimonites, so also I can't even say it, whatever. So also the sign of man will be to this generation. That's who our sign is. It's the three days rises again and lives now with the Father. Well, what about that? The next thing, the queen of the south, who's that? The queen of Sheba will rise up. That's his first king, first Kings 10, will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She did. She came from way out, Africa, to come and listen to Solomon's wisdom. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Who do you think he's talking about? He's talking about himself. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation in condemnment, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Now, here are a couple of points of this story, and this should come home to us. You, you want a sign back then. We want signs now. If you, you know what, Lord? I'm here. If you just move the paper on my desk, I'll know you're saying yes. Come on, you've said that prayer. I know you have. I used to when I was a kid in my room. Just knock something off one of my shelves and I'll know you're real. He said, forget those signs. Just remember that Jesus died and rose for you and that's real and true. And then... This lady, this queen from Africa, she moved everything she had to do. She was a person of great privilege, and she went up to the city where the Lord's people resided and asked Solomon because Solomon was so wise. These things are going to testify against these people because they knew these stories the most important part of the story is both of those persons are non-Jewish. That's the most important part of the story. The Jews had every advantage given to them. 
that could possibly give, be given to them at the time, and they rejected Christ. Non-Jewish people came from miles or endured much, repented out of darkness, these Ninevites, these Assyrians, because they heard a prophet, or this one heard a king, and, and believed as much as they could believe. Those people are going to be in judgment against the people of Israel at the time, but here, here's how it comes home to you. See, with knowledge comes responsibility. Do you know this thing you hold in your hand right here? People have died for this. I mean, this is literally... <laughs> They've died over the how to get it to us. People have died for this. Do you know this land that you're standing in right now? <laughs> People died for us. There was a revolution, and there's been world wars, and there's been freedom. And I would say that there's so, we, listen, folks, there is so much Bible information in this country. It's Incredible. Do you get the point? Here, you've been given every opportunity to hear the Word of God, to know the Word of God, to submit your life to Christ, and many won't do it. And some have done it, and they think they're, oh, yeah, I'll just go and cruise. I mean, who cares? And Jesus says, you're not getting this. Wake up. If you're not for me, you're against me. With responsibility, or with knowledge comes responsibility, and there's no one on the face of the earth that has more access to the gospel than the United States people, Americans. And if you don't surrender your life to Christ, if you don't follow God's will for your life, it's bad, going to be bad for you or for us. And he says this, now when he has little lamp... He puts it in a secret place or under a basket. No, he doesn't do that, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Hmm. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. Did you catch that? Whatever you take in through the eye and the heart and the mind and the ears... Don't let it be full of darkness. Take, do you see why pornography is so destructive, folks? <laughs> you see why it's so, it's so evil and it's so twisted. It takes something that God said we uh, could enjoy within the bounds of marriage and twisted it and made it ugly and made it objectifying and made it all these different evil things. And people are taking it in through the eye. It's propelling people to worse. Well, I don't know if it's worse, but... Bad things and bad things and bad things. Just go out and uh, watch the last interview of Ted Bundy. Just go do that. <laughs> I mean, this guy was a normal guy, raised in a home that went to church, did all the things that you did, sent the kids, you know, mom and dad sent the kids to youth group. And what happened was he got addicted to pornography. Does he admit in this last uh, interview that he did it and he should be punished? Yes, he admits it. But he said one of the aids that the enemy or that uh, uh, helped propel him to these savage, vicious, awful crimes was he began looking at soft pornography. And the more he looked, the, the less he enjoyed that. So he had to go deeper and he had to look at more graphic and more graphic till it got to the place where he was looking at violent pornography, and that spurred him to go out and hunt women all throughout the West Coast, all the way down to Florida, and murder them. And he says, if I could say one thing, I'd say, stay away. Stay away. Because what you take in through the eye makes you inside dark and evil. Therefore, take heed that the light, verse 35, which is your whole body is full of light. Having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Now turn with me real quick. Psalm 119, 105. Go there. Psalm 119, 105. I can't do. You know this. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light 
to my path. You know that, right? But how about this? Proverbs 6, 23. Go there. Proverbs 6, 23. For the commandment, Proverbs 6, 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Other scriptures say this, that in your inward parts you need light. Says it in Psalm 119. What can you use? It's just over and over again. What can you use to light up the inside? Well, take in the Word of God. If you're a person that just comes to Sunday church and you're taking in the Word of God because we're reading it here over this last hour, no, no, see, I don't know about you, but my heart is deceptively wicked without the Lord. Who can know it? I I live a slippery slope without reading the Word. How about this? If you stop reading the Word and you're a born-again, spirit-filled Christian, you know after one or two days, you just kind of look at yourself or maybe your spouse or your friend and say, something's off. I'm getting crusty and hard and dull. What is it? Oh, yeah. I haven't spent time with the Lord through His Word. And here He's saying, you know, When we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, the whole inside, by his word, the gospel is uh, powerful unto salvation, by his word, uh, by faith, uh, you know, you come to faith by the word of God. When we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, our eyes are opened. The Bible tells us our spiritual eyes are opened. And we become children of the light. The Bible tells us that in John 8, in 2 Corinthians 4, and Ephesians 5. So it is important that we have a single-minded focus that we are, what are we pouring in? What are you pouring in, man? Think about what you're pouring in this week. You might pour in a little football tonight. Maybe tomorrow night you pour in a little Netflix. Every day you're going to pour in, the statistics say, somewhere between seven and nine hours of a phone. Come on now. You say, well, I can't do the devotions. I don't have time. Yeah. There's a lie straight from the pit of hell. And so here, Jesus is saying, make sure, make sure that the things that you take in, the gospel, bring you to a place where your light has been lit. You've been transformed, Ephesians 2, from darkness to light. Right? We read it today. From the power of darkness into the kingdom of God. And what does God want from us? He wants obedience and trust. We've read it the whole time. Will you be willing? Will you, as we close right now, are you willing to do anything that the Lord asks you to do in His Word? Anything? Here, I'll really test you. I already tested you with unforgiveness. I'm going to test you again. You know that person that really bugs you? You know, it just rubs you like this. Come on, I know you're Christians, but that happens. He says, I want you to love that one. And I want you to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, by my word. He gives you the love chapter. You say, well, that's for my wife. No, that's his love for everyone. You say, oh, wait a minute. Love is patient. You mean you want me to be patient with him? He bugs me. You want me to be kind to him? You you say, yeah, I'll do anything the word asks me to do. You don't want to parade yourself? You don't want me to parade myself in love? Listen, do you know when somebody bugs you, you know what you tend to do, at least I do, is show them how much more I know than they do. The Word of God says you don't parade yourself around. You're not puffed up. You're long-suffering. Oh no, here comes the knockout punch. The guy that bugs you, you don't hate. He's not your enemy. Jesus says, I want you to also love your enemies. The ones that say Christianity is nothing. I want you to love.
The ones who say your politics stink, I want you to love. The ones who say everything you believe, I hate. In fact, I hate you. Jesus says, love them. Now, nobody's talking about appropriate boundaries being broken. You have to be safe. No one's saying that. But, you know, it's easy to love somebody when they're refreshing and beautiful and they make you feel refreshed. But what about the one who bugs you or nitpicks at you or hates you? For that one, we need always and ever the Spirit of God in a humble heart teaching us to grow in His love. So here's the question. As we read all of Luke 11, some of Luke 11, (laughs) part two of Luke 11, we'll get to part three next week. Here's the question. Will you really do what God asks? Or will you make it a buffet and just pick and choose? Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much for this morning and for your convicting words. Lord, I don't know about the others, but surgery was done in my heart here today. And I just pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit so that we could obey. Lord, you even give us the grace and the resource to obey, to even give thanks, and we need it every minute, every hour. Come, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.